everyone. Welcome to Four Advisors, the podcast for and about financial advisors. I'm your host, Dave Polis, and today we're going to be discussing what might be one of the more prominent fears among certain clients advisors might have. What happens if inflation starts to rise? How will that affect my portfolio? And what steps can I take to mitigate any negative effects that might have? Fortunately, our guest today is eminently qualified to help solve this conundrum. Carl Noble is Chief Investment Officer for Pinnacle Advisory Group in Columbia, Maryland. Carl joined Pinnacle in 2001 after graduating with honors with a bachelor's degree in finance from the University of Maryland. As senior investment analyst, he's been responsible for a variety of different research and analytic efforts, ranging from broad macroeconomic topics to individual security selection issues. He helped develop Pinnacle's tactical asset allocation investment strategy from its inception in 2002. Carl was appointed Chief Investment Officer in 2020 and will be responsible for all of Pinnacle's portfolios operating within the platform. He's an integral part of Pinnacle's investment team. Carl, welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Hi, Dave. It's good to be back with you. Carl, the recent change in administration has created quite a bit of uncertainty, not only in the investment community, for the public at large as well. There are many facets to those concerns from an investment standpoint, of course. One of them, the most likely possibility of accelerating inflation in the economy. Now, just to get everybody on a level playing field, can you provide a working definition of what inflation actually is and what conditions lead to its increase as a function of the economy? I'll do my best, Dave. And, and you're right. Uh, the, the topic of inflation is one of those things that always seems to be pretty high on the list of, of considerations for you know, not only economists, or, uh, but investors themselves. And um, you, know, the, you do see uh, different references to um, uh, different definitions of inflation out there. But I think commonly what people are talking about in, in is a sustained increase in the, in the broader price level in an economy over a period of time. Um, and what we mean by this is typically, you know, you're looking at broader indexes like the consumer price index or, or different inflation uh, measures that are out there. Um, and, and again, like I said, it's really meant to be a, a, a gauge of the broader price level in an economy. I think a lot of individual um, you know, consumers feel inflation in certain aspects of their lives, whether it's in uh, the rising cost of education or at times healthcare, And those are very real and certainly impact people's daily lives. But, um, uh, you know, price increases in certain parts of the economy here and there don't always translate to uh, a broader, um, uh, you know, a broader level of inflation that, you know, is typically the common def- definition of, of what the market or economists are, are thinking and talking about. So uh, a shorthand way a lot of people like to think about it is, too much demand t- chasing too few goods in, in some sense. You know, that's one way you can arrive at inflation. Um, and then another way you can arrive uh, at inflation um, is, uh, you know, if, you know, there, there can be supply constraints, which we've seen over time in, in history as well. All right. That sounds like a pretty solid definition. So people can feel like there's inflation when there really isn't. The label has a very specific set of criteria. So now that we know exactly what inflation is, what factors can cause or trigger an increase in the inflation rate? What 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 happens in the world to, to make that go? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I think right now people are actually reevaluating what some of the traditional um, factors have historically been, and you know what's going on right now, which I think we're going to get into a little bit more. You know, I just mentioned a couple of them. You know, again, the way economists look at it, you can have. Um, um, demand pull inflation, which is essentially when the economy uh, the economy is running hotter, you know, demand is picking up, um, and that just simply, you know, there's, there's too much demand chasing too few goods, and that can cause the price level to increase. The other way is sort of a cost push, 
inflation, which typically involves supply constraints. So um, one of the, the, the classic examples is looking back in sort of the 1970s and, you know, the oil embargo and OPEC and that sort of thing, which created a huge bottleneck with energy prices and caused, you know, those prices here in the U.S. to skyrocket. And that, that's another way that you can arrive um, at, you know, uh, at, at an increase in the overall price level as well. Um, and then, you know, there are a couple of things uh, or, or sort of rules of thumb that I think have been around for a long time that, as I mentioned a minute ago, are, are kind of getting called into question right now. So um, one of them would be that, you know, there, there's classically, I believe it was Milton Friedman had the, the saying that, you know, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, meaning that, you know, if you got a big increase in the, the money supply, that that would eventually translate into higher prices in the economy because there's just too much liquidity. Uh, being being um, uh, injected into the economy. Well, what, what's happening now with, you know, not only this year as a result of the pandemic, but even over the last decade or so in the wake of the, the financial crisis in 2008 and 2009, has called that into question because the level of the money supply has been increased very, very dramatically, and we haven't seen inflation returns. So people are taking a look at that again. And then the other, you know, common sort of um, uh, inflation a tool that people have used is called the Phillips curve, which is basically looking at the level of employment and relating that to the level of inflation and, and the, you know, the conventional wisdom. And, and previously, the, the numbers supported the idea that as you got to lower levels of inflation, again, that kind of uh, meant that the economy was starting to run hotter and inflation would start to push up. And so there were actually, you know, uh, graphs of the Phillips curve that were uh, quite clear to see that. And, you know, this is just another thing that over the last decade or so, the Phillips curve curve is almost completely flat now, meaning that, you know, the way that the level of unemployment has moved around has really had almost no bearing on the level of inflation. So there are a couple of things that I think make this an interesting topic um, today, certainly. And, and that's just because it has thrown into question uh, some of these traditionally used models and measures of inflation that have been around for a long time. So while the finer points may be still be arguing about uh, what side this actually works on, if you envision sort of the teeter-totter on the playground with the supply-demand curve, uh, the, the supply side goes on a diet, and that tends to tilt things his direction, and that causes the inflation to go up. Okay, that makes sense. I get that. Now, you mentioned that the curve has been fairly flat recently. What kind of control mechanisms are currently in place to contain that? Uh, that number seems to have been fairly low for a number of years recently, and a lot of our... Uh, Clients' financial plans and other people's financial plans are kind of betting on that low number for a while. How does that? Uh, what what controls that? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I don't I don't think it was a, a specific policy decision this time around. I, I do think you know I mentioned previously um, some of what resulted of the of the great financial crisis in two thousand eight and two thousand nine caused so much you know financial devastation not only in the U S. But, but globally in a lot of developed economies that there have been long lasting. Um, ramifications from that for a number of years now. And then just as, um, you know, maybe we were starting to get past that particular episode, uh, like I said, we ran headlong into this global pandemic in 2020, which seems to have almost compounded some of these issues that have existed. So, you know, I think the main thing that has kept inflation pretty low for the last dozen years or so is really just the fact that the economy hasn't been able to grow very quickly. And like I said, a lot of that is the result of what happened in the global financial crisis and just the, you know, the lingering scars that that left. And so when you've had GDP growth of really, you know, on average, plus or minus 2% over the last decade or so, 
that's really just not a, a very rapid pace of growth. And certainly year to year, that can change a little bit. But on average, it's been you know below the normal long-term trend of GDP growth, which is closer to three and a half or maybe even four percent, you know, over many decades. So, you know, a lack of growth, I think, number one, has kept inflation uh, very low. Um, and, you know, number two, I think an, another response to this has been, you know, the amount of, of debt that's been added um, in, into the equation, uh, largely to address the problems of that we just talked about. Uh, but the overhanging level of debt now, you know, do, again, does add sort of a a headwind on growth looking looking forward. And, um, you know, some people get worried that that ultimately could turn out to actually be inflationary down the road. And that that may be the case. But I think, you know, we're still in this stage right now where growth just simply isn't fast enough. And, you know, this overhanging level of debt is is one of those, um, like I said, one of those headwinds that's just really weighing on uh, the level of inflation, which which quite honestly, the the authorities and specifically the Fed, which I think we're going to get into, they actually would like to see inflation start to pick up. Well, that was my uh, my next question. Actually, you led right into it uh, in that the Fed is artificially sort of controlling all this. And the other two sounded much like organic causes, the the, the lack of demand and the slow growth and, and the overhanging debt. Those sounded like natural economic forces to me. But when the Fed imposes an overlaying control on interest rates and money supply and that sort of thing, isn't that sort of artificially... Uh, leveling the playing field a little bit. It is, and and you know th- this is really the Fed has kind of you know done a 180 degree turn really because you know for a lot of the the, the monetary historians out there will know that again mentioning sort of the 1970s and 1980s, um, the Fed's biggest goal was to break the back of inflation. Right, inflation was really kind of starting to spiral out of control in in the U.S. and in other places. Uh, Paul Volcker, who led the Fed at the time came in and was pretty unpopular the way that he, you know, quickly and, and dramatically raised interest rates, but ultimately it was to quote unquote, break the back of inflation. And um, that was successful. Uh, and so, you know, for many years following that, the, one of the Fed's main goal, and they were very sensitive to the, to any signs that inflation was starting to pick up, you know, through the subsequent economic cycles in the 1980s and the 1990s, because of that experience, you know, they didn't want to get to a place again where they were behind the curve, so to speak. Um, in trying to combat a, a rising inflation backdrop, which proved to be, you know, so much of a problem for the for the broader economy. So, you know, the, the conventional wisdom within the Fed for for a couple of decades um, was that, you know, that one of the primary goals was was to make sure that inflation didn't didn't rise to that degree again. Um, I think we've really seen a major rethinking, and in fact, this year, um, they, they, the Fed has been even more specific about this that they're viewing it very differently now. Uh, they actually have, um, you know, changed this idea of the inflation target that they're, they're viewing, which was around two percent. You know, when you look at uh, normal inflation indexes here in the U.S., and now they're talking about they'd like to see inflation actually be a little bit above that for a period of time to to kind of make up for the fact uh, that it's been below for you know, like I said, most of the last ten to twelve years. So the Fed has really kind of switched uh, their thinking. In terms of this, now they certainly don't want to see runaway inflation. They continue to assure everyone that you know if inflation starts to pick up more than they'd like, that they have the tools, you know, to then swoop in and whether it's raising interest rates or using other measures to to contain that. But um, I think they've actually been frustrated by you know the the number the significant number of efforts that they've taken um, over the over the last decade has not been able to generate 
more inflation uh, or enough inflation, I guess, in their view, um, to, to get the economy back on sort of a regular footing. And, um, you know, here we are again, the, the Fed has responded to the pandemic by taking interest rates down to zero. And so I think, you know, part of their thinking again is, well, getting inflation um, a, a little bit higher than it is now would allow them to move interest rates back to a more um, appropriate level for a period of time that then allows them to respond to the next you know, economic downturn that occurs. Because when you're at the zero bound, I mean, obviously, they, they don't really have much room to take interest rates any lower than they are right now at zero. Um, you know, other economies have gone below zero. The Fed seems reluctant to want to do that. Um, but, I, but I think they are worried about being a little bit boxed in and having sufficient ammunition to respond to the next downturn should it occur. So um, again, like it's been a very interesting change from the Fed's standpoint in terms of how they're viewing inflation overall. So really that choke point happened back in the 70s under Paul Volcker. Has there been another time in, in United States history where you can recall that inflation has sort of spiraled out of control? I mean, we've seen European nations suffer with this pictures of people dragging, you know, wheelbarrows full of cash into buy a loaf of bread and things like that. But I don't recall those those circumstances happening in the US beyond the uh, the whip inflation now years. Uh, do you recall time before that? I think you would have to go back to pretty far um, around some of the, the World War type um, time periods where there was rationing occurring and that sort of thing. So you, you'd have to go pretty far back. I think um, here in the U.S., the, the late 19, mid to late 1970s and early 1980s is, is the kind of the clearest example. Um, there have been, you know, brief spurts of sort of what I would call cyclical inflation over potentially a period of a year or two um, at times over the last decade. But there hasn't been this sort of sustained uh, inflation that, you know, it's carried and gone much higher. And so, you know, uh, there, there was one period um, from you know, the, the early 2000s till around actually leading up to the financial crisis in 2007 and 2008, where, you know, this was really the period when China, there was kind of the rise of China. They, um, that's when they really emerged onto the scene and China was growing very rapidly. They were consuming a lot of commodities as they were growing in the double digits from a GDP perspective. And so that did generate some global inflation for a couple of years there in the early 2000s. But, you know, as I said, that was the lead up really um, unfortunately, to the to the financial crisis at the end, towards the end of that decade, and it really brought that all of that to a screeching halt. Um, and so, like I said, really ever since then, it, it, it's you know we've really been in an environment of a lack of inflation as opposed to you know uh, rapid inflation. So it, it would be essentially true to say that the Fed has essentially done its job in controlling inflation and keeping things under under a reasonable level. Uh, by tinkering with the, one of the three levers they've got to play with, realistically, interest rates or, or money supply or debt levels. So they've done their job and done it well, and, and the U.S. has prospered as a result. So, but what does is, what is rising inflation look like and feel like to the average investor, though? I mean, you mentioned a couple of spikes there. D does that create a situation where you need to change your, your holdings or your asset allocation any when that happens? Yeah, I think for a lot of people, you know, based on the conversation we've been having, that they really... You know, except for a segment of investors who have been around for a, long, a much longer time, really don't have an experience of what a higher inflationary sort of backdrop does mean for an investment portfolio or for their view of the economy. Um, and so that that is an interesting consideration. Um, and one of the reasons I think this has been an issue that stays in the forefront of, of everyone's mind, kind of looking for signs that inflation is starting to pick back up. 
to to try to make a determination if, if they might need to, to do something differently. But you know, I think the big thing there is that you know, again, dating going back to like the '70s and '80s, um, uh, the market was very volatile. There was there was a, a really bad bear market in the in the mid 1970s. But you know, over more of like a 10 year period or so, the the stock market was very volatile and didn't really go anywhere. But in real terms, adjusted for inflation, because it was increasing so rapidly, you know, stocks actually decreased in real terms quite a bit. So I think that's something that, you know, isn't easy for, you know, average investors to sort of um, sort of like see and feel in their portfolios if, if, if their portfolio is going down in real terms. It doesn't necessarily show up on the P&L statement, um, but that can be happening in the background. So I think that's one reason that people have, do have to be careful about. Um, looking for signs that inflation may be starting to return. Um, you know, it certainly isn't happening right here and now because of, like I said, the pandemic this year. But that would be one of the reasons for people to stay on guard for this to happen again, because, um, you know, their their portfolios, which are built to be diversified and um, in most cases and in order to, to ride through different types of market cycles, you know, I don't I don't think people really have a firm understanding of what that would mean, like I said, in real terms, if their portfolio is seems to be holding up in value, but ultimately is, is losing against inflation. Well, let's talk about that loss for a second. There hasn't been a significant inflationary uh, rise backdrop that you mentioned earlier since your time at Pinnacle. Let's try something that I know our compliance department is going to hate. If you were to backtest what Pinnacle's doing now into that era, how would they do, do you think? <laughs> You're right. Anytime you use the word backtest, the, uh, the compliance flags go up for sure. Um, no, what I, I think another way to view it is what we do a lot of times when we're when we're t- evaluating the, our port- current portfolio construction is we do what we call stress testing. So it may be that we're not in a high inflation environment currently, but what we can do is kind of run a simulation of what our portfolio would have done, um, whether it's a high inflation backdrop or some other, um, you know, economic scenario that you would choose to do. And, and a lot of other firms do these exercises as well so that you can get a better understanding that, hey, you know, we're currently positioned this way and it might be for this slow growth and very low inflation backdrop. But hey, if inflation starts to pick up, we need to understand through, and again, stress testing is one of the better tools to use, um, that, you know, this is what the impact of rising inflation would have. And as a result, you know, we get into these conversations about, okay, well, then what are the implications and the changes that we would probably need to make if we just, you know, had a shift in mindset that all of a sudden it was time to defend against rising inflation. So those are really the exercises as a team that we, you know, sit down and go through, like I said, whether it's, you know, rising inflation or, you know, higher interest rates or, or whatever scenario you'd like to concoct. Um, there, are, there are different ways to approach that. And again, all of, all of this is uh, j- just a way to, to see how a diversified portfolio would react um, and what kind of return profile you might expect when, when those sorts of things are happening. See, I think that's a very smart educational exercise to, to go back and stress test your current situation if some major lever of it changed, some big aspect of it shifted, and to see where, where you're positioned and how you stand up. That's a terrific insight. And, and real individual investors can do this too if they've got you know, an advisor or someone like you to help them. Uh, it's a terrific story. We're up on a break when we come back. We'll learn about how inflation can affect your investments and your clients' investments and what can be done to mitigate the damage to your retirement funding plan and your clients. We'll be right back. Are you an RIA or financial advisor looking to grow and scale your practice but feel like you could use some help? 
Feel like there are lots of growth options out there, but don't have time to research them and don't want to make an expensive mistake? Want to spend more time helping clients instead of time-consuming investment research, compliance checks, or transactional work? If you answered yes to any of these, Pinnacle Advisor Solutions has the answers you need. With a range of outsourced options and financial planning support, Pinnacle has a solution that fits your needs, budget, and circumstances to help you scale up, grow your practice, or put a succession plan in place. For more information or to set up an appointment, call 201-919-4838. And we're back with Carl Noble, CIO at Pinnacle Advisory, talking about strategies that can help mitigate the effects of inflation eroding returns. Carl, we've looked at inflation from a number of angles today. Now I want to zoom in a little bit on what individual investors and their advisors can do to reduce the effects of inflation on their client's portfolio. What's a good first step for the average investor to try and preserve capital during those high inflation periods? That's a, it's a great question, Dave. I think the first step in our minds always, just because it's it's been our bread and butter for a long time, is to have the flexibility in your approach to constructing your portfolio to be able to respond to you know what might be regime shifts, let's call them, from lower inflation to higher inflation in this case, which is what we're talking about today, or it could be other things. And so that may be simplistic, but I do think for a lot of people, they have adopted sort of a buy and hold type of strategy where, you know, again, they more or less close their eyes and let their portfolio work over time. And I think if you get into the wrong environment um, and you don't have that flexibility or the freedom to adjust some of your holdings from what might be happening, you know, that can get people in some trouble potentially. So, you know, number one for us, first and foremost, is is having, uh, you know, some element of flexibility in your approach to be able to, like I said, respond to, to some of these changes as they occur. Um, and, and that's probably a good place to start, I think. That's, it sounds like the, the best place to start, in my mind. You, you got to sort of be ready to make a shift. Now, what are the major asset classes that are traditionally seen as protective under those high inflation situations? Where, where should we be shifting to? That's a great question. I might actually approach this sort of in reverse, meaning that, you know, the, the worst asset classes, I think, for a lot of people and for a lot of our clients that, that we work with have diversified portfolios where they do have significant percentages of fixed income. And that, that's by design. It's meant to lower risk and provide diversification over a long period of time. But when you get into higher inflation environments and particularly at the level of interest rates that we are today, which are rock bottom, um, that can have really uh, uh, damaging effects on investors' bond portfolio if inflation starts to pick up and, and interest rates starts to rise as a result. You know, I think, you know, uh, along with inflation declining for several decades, interest rates have kind of followed suit. And so I think people have gotten very accustomed to the fact that, you know, interest rates, uh, I think there's a mindset out there that maybe, oh, all they do is go lower and they've continued to go even lower uh, further than people thought all the way down to the, to the levels they are today. And as a result, bonds have, have done really well as that's occurred. But at some point, and, and no one knows exactly when it will be, but when, at some point when that starts to change, I think it's going to be pretty shocking for people to realize that they can actually lose money in their fixed income portfolios, which is really meant to be more of the defensive side of their portfolio. So that that's I, I just wanted to start there to, you know, to to get people thinking about there there are certain scenarios and conditions that exist where it could be very difficult environments for fixed income. And then the flip side of that, um, getting finally getting to your initial question is. You know, I think a lot of people um, in inflationary environments, the, the data suggests that real things related to real assets tend to do well. So um, some of those would be, you know, traditional commodities, uh, 
oil-based commodities that have done well in higher inflation backdrops, things like real estate, again, because it's backed by a real asset. Um, equities have done, you know, they've done okay at times. There have been other inflation uh, backdrops where they haven't done as well. But again, for us, the way that, that we approach it, looking within the equity market, there are there's certainly clear winners and losers from a sector standpoint, meaning that a lot of traditional deep cyclical sectors where things like materials and possibly energy, industrials, um, those types of, of sectors, which quite frankly have been out of favor for quite a while, those tend to do well in um, a higher inflationary uh, type of backdrop as well. So, you know, again, if you have the flexibility to do so um, and you, you were detecting signs that inflation was starting to pick up, it would make sense to consider shift, starting to shift some money into some of those areas to help to protect against the effects of inflation. So things like real estate, precious metals, uh, forward-looking commodities, those kinds of things that aren't as affected by it might be good bets. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Now, are those options still available today? Do those still hold in, in the, the 2020 post-COVID era? They certainly are uh, available today and, and more accessible than ever, ever through exchange-traded funds for mo- most of those asset classes we, we rattle off. Um, we certainly are... Uh, users of, of ETFs in our portfolios. And so we, again, as we look ahead and when we try to game plan for an eventual rise for inflation, we, we definitely think that there are, or we do have the options and, and plenty of levers to pull to try to start defending against the higher inflation backdrop when it, when it starts to occur. Um, you know, some of these things, as I mentioned earlier, have been out of favor. So I think a lot of investors have started to maybe move, increasingly move away from them because it just hasn't, been rewarding to continue to own some of those things over the last few years, even for diversification uh, purposes, as things like the FANG stocks and high-flying tech stocks have, have led for the last couple of years. I think people have con- continued to migrate more towards what's been working and to some degree have you know increasingly started to ignore or move away from some of these other things. And so, again, I think the caution is that should this start to turn, that people may find themselves underweight. Uh, some of these things that would be the things that would be best positioned to help def- your portfolio defend against the effects of higher inflation, as we already talked about. So, you know, I, I, again, I think for something for people to think about is, you know, have, have maybe have I migrated too much towards, you know, some of the growth stock trade and the high flying tech names um, over the last couple of years, even though they've done very, very well, um, just from the standpoint of looking ahead. So if you follow the the, the position that, that we've held all along at Pinnacle is that no matter how much patience it requires, that diversification really can be your best ticket to a good result. And that chasing returns is probably not going to lead you down the right road long term. Yeah, I would say that, that that's a good way to think about it. Uh, yeah, because we, well, we talked about it, people moving into the FANG stocks, because sure, they're doing well now. Uh, what happens if there's a regulatory change in the environment and inflation goes up? Those fang boys are going to be in real trouble and you'll be lightweight on bonds that weren't really doing much. But since you chased the returns, you ended up uh, on the losing end of the stick. That's not a good idea. Well, I, I was sorry. I was just going to follow up quickly, Dave. And just and actually some of those the things that we talked about are, are actually linked, meaning, you know, um, the fact that bonds have been doing well is some of those same reasons are the reasons that these pro stocks have been doing well, meaning that, you know, they are almost viewed in, in using invest, some investment jargon here as long duration assets on the equity side, meaning that, you know, uh, that they have cash flows that, you know, are expected to come over a longer period of time. And that's been one of the big things boosting those names. But to the extent that rates, as I mentioned, start to go up or inflation starts to rise of 
that could really remove some of the tailwinds that those companies, types of companies have been enjoying. Now, see, that's an interesting observation. I'm not sure anybody realized that those were the behaviors of those two were really that closely linked. That's fascinating. How would Pinnacle go about adjusting their portfolios in the event of, of increasing inflation? Our preference is always to move sort of incrementally and respond to the evidence as it, as it starts to occur. I, it's unlikely that inflation would suddenly pop up um, overnight. You know, you, you immediately shift from very low inflation to very high inflation. Um, and, in, you know, in our view, it's more likely that you would start to see, um, you know, different clues that, that the conditions are falling into place to expect higher inflation over time. And so, you know, again, we would, we would tend to move sort of incrementally and start to shift towards some of those areas that we talked about. So, again, um, you know, some of the out of favor value sectors, I already mentioned industrials, uh, energy stocks, those traditional energy stocks, those types of things. Certainly, you know, commodities and, and gold was precious metals that you, that you mentioned as well. Um, so those would certainly uh, be the types of assets that we would start to consider, start to consider adding to. Um, and then on, on the bond side, which I, I mentioned previously as well, I think it would be very important for people to be, as much as they can, reducing their, the interest rate exposure, even if they're going to stay within fixed income, and a lot of people have to, just the way that they construct their portfolios, there are different ways that you can move within fixed income to avoid the most interest sensitive types of bonds, move into other areas that should protect better um, as rates are starting to go up. And, and that would certainly be one of the things that we would be doing on that side of the portfolio as well. So as, as our advisor audience are talking to clients, their advice realistically is going to be, hey, let's not make any big moves here. Let's do things incrementally in a way that we can control a little better and see the results in the short term before we make any, any big adjustments one way or the other. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. Those are things that investors, if they're on their own, can do uh, by themselves. But really, the, the level of sophistication to do some of these things in the right order and with the right timing really does depend on on someone with a little more sophistication. And and the advisor should sort of own that sophistication and say, "Look, I need to I need to help you with this to make sure we get the best outcome." Now, you mentioned that inflation doesn't sort of pop up by itself overnight. What might be some of the signs that inflation rates are building and that it's looming in the immediate future? How do we see that coming and make the adjustments in time? Well, I think there are a lot of different things to keep an eye on. Certainly some of the traditional measures that I mentioned earlier, whether it's the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, the Fed has their uh, personal consumption expenditures, which is their preferred gauge. So eventually it would show up in those sorts of, sorts of things and become much more obvious. But I think for us and for people who are looking for the clues sort of ahead of time is you're, you're going to be looking at some more of the market, what probably a lot of people would refer to as market-based indicators. And so that would be things like commodity prices. I think if you saw um, some of the more economically sensitive commodities, which have been pretty depressed for a while now, but if those started to to increase, um, you know, whether it's you know the price of copper or iron ore, some of these things that are heavily used in, in the economic, you know, in the industrial processes, uh, which would suggest that maybe... Uh, demand is really picking up rapidly, you know, that that would be one clue. Um, there are other gauges uh, that that people can look at economically. And, you know, I already mentioned some of the, the broader inflation measures, but, you know, there are other things like even the level of, you know, employment, which is just a reflection of, you know, how strong the economy is at any given time. You know, I, I think there's a variety of different things to look at, but we would be probably more clued in on uh, some of the earlier moving indicators, like I said, whether it's market-based commodity prices, whether it's some of the sub-indexes and things like the, the purchasing managers indexes that do have a price component to them, 
and those are monthly and a lot more timely at uh, mo- more often than waiting for you know things uh, like CPI to get updated finally. So you know we we do think we have enough um, different indicators to follow that that it, you know we should be able to to sniff out when inflation is starting to come back. I think is our opinion. So it's really not one indicator. It's it's a series of them, and they tend to be. Uh, more sensitive issues that require a little more sophistication to look at. And they tend to be things that update fairly regularly so that you can see it coming further in advance. I think that's that, that's the smartest way to go, really, because there's a lot of things you could look at, uh, some of which are going to lead you astray if you don't know how to interpret them. So realistically, stick to the stuff that you can, you can see around you and that updates regularly so you can catch it in time to do something about it. We're almost out of time. If you had one little nugget of wisdom for our audience today about inflation, Carl, what would it be? Well, maybe I'll, I'll be greedy and use two. Now, I mean, the first one I'll just repeat again, adopting some degree of flexibility within your, your strategy or your, your approach would, would be number one, because I think people um, you know, have maybe gotten accustomed to the environment over the last decade or so, as, as we talked about, um, and maybe have gotten a little complacent that that's you know, the same thing is going to continue looking forward when, you know, at some point, maybe things actually will start to change. And so, you know, number two, I, I guess, would be the, the word I just mentioned, not not to get complacent, not to assume that, you know, economic growth is going to stay at these low levels indefinitely, um, you know, not to assume that, you know, that the Fed is just going to, um, you know, continue to, you know, approach things the way that they have historically. We talked about how they've actually made a, a pretty big shift, which I'm not sure that the broader investment community is necessarily appreciating uh, fully just yet. Um, so again, I, I think it's staying open-minded. It's looking for uh, turning points, which, you know, quite frankly, we, we don't necessarily see right here and today, but um, staying open-minded, I, th- I think is always one of the important ingredients for, for investment success. And I think anytime you rule out uh, an, an outcome, like for instance, saying, well, inflation is never going to come back. That's what can, can certainly lead you astray. Because it's it's at those moments that you know people can get off guard, realize that they don't own enough in the way of let's say um, inflation hedges, you know, along the topic that we're discussing today, or or other things, um, and and that's really what I think where people can find themselves. In. So really, flexibility, open mindedness, and an, an ability to be available for change sounds like the way to go. Carl, that's terrific advice. Uh, we've really enjoyed talking with you today. I know I've learned a lot. My whole note page is full. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. I hope you come back and visit us again soon. Great, Dave. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. We've been speaking with Carl Noble, CIO at Pinnacle Advisory Group. If you have any questions about how to mitigate or control inflationary erosion and return for your clients or anything else you've heard on this program, drop us a line at fouradvisors at pinnacle.com. We'll get you some answers as quickly as we can. You've been listening to Four Advisors, the podcast for and about financial advisors. I'm your host, Dave Polis. Until next time, thanks for listening. You're listening to Four Advisors, the podcast for and about financial advisors. This program is for educational purposes only, and the opinions expressed here by guests do not necessarily fully or accurately reflect the legal intent or nature of Pinnacle Advisor Solutions, Pinnacle Advisory Group, or its senior management. This program is not intended to give legal, investment, or financial planning advice, and opinions and statements made in this podcast should not be relied on as such. 